What a wonderful opportunity to praise God, to reflect on the things we have in the Lord's Supper. and uh, We do this, as Michael's indicated, every first day of the week. But obviously today, because of the nature of what's called the Easter celebration, we are, have a heightened attention towards it. And we're going to do that continually this morning, and especially now as we continue in allowing God to speak to us through His Word. Go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 1. That will be our first text for this morning. We're going to talk today about a living hope. Why the resurrection of Jesus really matters. Easter is a Christian tradition, if you will. As we'll see in just a minute, it's not necessarily rooted in Scripture as far as an Easter celebration, but the event that it's built upon is. That is the resurrection of Jesus. And... It's a historical fact, and we'll look at that in our first main thought this morning. Uh, we'll look also, as Mike indicated, about the nature of the resurrection. All things are made new because of the truth of this event. Jesus, as reflected in these great songs, breaking free from the bonds of death by the Father's power, uh, being raised three days later to live and to never die again. This is the most significant event of all human history because it changes everything in our life. And that's what we're going to reflect on uh, this morning. The resurrection is our great hope. The resurrection is our great hope. It transcends a finding a cure for COVID, which may or may not be found. It even transcends finding a cure for cancer, which may or may not be found. This event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, took on our greatest unsolved problem, and that is the problem of death. There's been billions of dollars in the science and research area uh, spent on studying the nature of human life, of aging, of trying to prolong life, and we have made absolutely zero progress. And trying to break the bonds of simply dying, we've done great things as far as learning about health, learning about how to maybe extend life a little bit longer. As Moses wrote in Psalm chapter 90, the span of a man's life is 70 years, and if by a matter of strength, 80 years. We're not much beyond that, if beyond that at all. And the problem of death is still the problem. But it has been addressed. Not by the science community, not for sure by politics, uh, not by the therapy commuting, uh, community, but simply by Jesus Christ himself, by the power of the Father, breaking free from death, never to die again, and therefore paving the way for us to do the same. And on this day that is called Easter, that event gets the most attention. And even though I share the sentiments of Michael as far as every Lord's Day we give attention to this, we're just simply going to seize the moment. We're going to run with the attention that's given to this day and give greater reflection on the nature of Christ's resurrection. First, simply four considerations. Just about the nature of Easter uh, to help us understand it. If you've been searching in your Bibles for Easter, you probably had a hard time finding it unless you have the King James Version. Let's look at these four Easter considerations. First of all, the word Easter itself, you might think, well, that must be all over the Bible. It's not. 
It's not anywhere except in one version, the King James Version, and in one place, Acts chapter 12, verse 4. In Acts chapter 12, uh, Luke, who is writing about the events of early Christianity, is talking about the death of the apostle James and how that Herod was looking to put to death another apostle, Peter. It was right around the time of the Passover. And if you look in Acts 12, verse 4, you'll see the word Passover. But if you have the King James Version, you'll see the word Easter. The only version that has this word Easter. Uh, scholars debate on how that got in there the way it did. Uh, some simply focus on the idea of that Easter means kind of like dawn or new light, and that's connected to the resurrection. But the historical evidence is simply that it's around the time of the Passover, as Mike, Michael indicated, that Christ was crucified. And it's simply a time reference being given by Luke because there was no Easter celebration at all within Christian tradition that early. It came on later with Catholicism and other developments. But as far as being a biblically rooted ceremony or special one singular day to be observed, it's simply not. Um, Easter became the traditional honoring of Christ's resurrection. And you see those traditions today. Uh, churches give a lot of emphasis to it. Uh, there's a lot of attempts to maybe welcome people in the community, because uh, a lot of times people from the community say, well, I'll go on Easter, or that's a day that I'll, I'll, I'll go to church, and, and people like that, well, let's, let's make sure when they do come, <laughs> they're glad they came, and, and they, we have a festive service. Uh, an Easter celebration, though, like Christmas, is deeply rooted in tradition, but not Scripture. Uh, Christmas is very much like Easter. Uh, attention given to the birth of Christ with Christmas, attention given to the resurrection of Christ with Easter, but you don't find either one celebrated, if you will, in Scripture. Clearly, there's attention to the birth of Christ and the significance of it, and especially to the resurrection of Christ, but not as like a holiday or a festive day that more attention is given to it. But Christians can seize the moment, which we're going to do today, and seize the moment uh, to capture this event of the resurrection and give a solid foundation to it. I think part of our challenge today is many people see Easter as, oh, it's just one of those beautiful stories of the Christian faith, and we just love the Easter story and, and Christ rising from the dead. And, 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 and there's a lot to like just on a surface level, but Scripture goes far deeper than a surface level regarding the significance of the resurrection. Uh, it's more than just a story. Now remember, we use the word story in two senses in the English language. There's the fictional sense of story. A long time ago in a land far, far away, or a galaxy far, far away. Uh, that's a story that's clearly fictional. There's nothing rooted in any reality at all, but it's just a beautiful story. And many people see Easter like that. It's just one of those beautiful things of Christianity. But in Scripture, the story of the resurrection of Christ is much more like this, what we see related to the news, story at 11. Story at 11. When the news talks about the story at 11, they're talking about something that really happened, but when, they gonna, when they're going to capture it in the 11 o'clock newscast, they're not going to be talking about it for 30 minutes. They're going to capture what happened, whether it be with a fire or an accident or, God forbid, a shooting. They're going to capture it in a very concise way where they highlight certain things that are most relevant. 
The news stories capture the things that are most relevant in a very concise way, and that's exactly how we understand, understand the Bible stories, especially the resurrection. It's a true account told very well, which all stories are that are rooted in historical fact. Let's go ahead and look at that first reality. Jesus' resurrection is rooted in historical certainty. It's not a myth. It's not a fable. It's not something that just evolved over time. It's at the heart and the very beginning of the Christian faith. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are historical accounts of the life of Christ. They are written as such, and as they are referred to, they are referred to as historical accounts. Look at the way Luke begins the book of Acts and how he references previous accountings of the life of Christ. Acts chapter 1, verse 1, Luke writes, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote all about her, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up into heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Verse 3, now notice. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was what? Alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, he was eating with them. Uh, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, so they met together and asked him, Lord, uh, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Verse 9, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes. And a cloud hid him from their sight. Then they were looking intently into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Just a few points to notice here. Luke is writing from historian's standpoint. He says, many have taken up this task of writing all the things that Jesus said and the things he taught, and that's why Mike is focusing on the things that Jesus taught. But then it says, verse 3, after suffering, suffering, he presented himself to them, he was seen by others, and he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. We can look at Thomas touching his hands and recognizing this is the same Jesus, the multiple appearances that are recorded after uh, his death that show that he was seen by others in this resurrected form. He spent 40 days, Luke says, from the time he was resurrected till the time he ascended. We'll see some other evidences in just a moment in 1 Corinthians. But notice here that Jesus' resurrection is presented historically, not mythologically. Even the writing of Acts chapter 1, it's written as history not as something fanciful that was just made up. 
Let's look at Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Luke wrote not only Luke, which is an account of the life of Christ, he also wrote Acts, but look what he says in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. What we see here is as accounts of life, Jesus' life are presented, they're presented as historical accounts. Luke chapter 1, verse 1, Luke writes, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Verse 3 now. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Verse 4 now. So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. See, what Luke is saying here, he's writing down what everyone has heard and discussed about what Jesus did and what he said. Luke is saying, I'm gathering all this together and I'm now putting this in an orderly account so that people might what? Be simply wowed by it or think, oh, that's just beautiful. No, Luke says, I'm writing this to you so that you might know the certainty of these things that have happened in the life of Christ. Let's go to the Gospel of John now. I just want to read the account of the resurrection of Christ. I want you to notice how it's written in historical language. Not fanciful, not something that's made up. And then I want to see the very last verse of this chapter. So just, if you're just listening along, allow your mind to reflect upon this as you listen. If you're reading along, just look not only at the way John writes this. He writes it historically, but he also writes it well, just as newscasters do. This is a concise account of Jesus' resurrection. John chapter 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciples, or disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Verse 5, he bent over and looked in the, at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. Verse 9, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. 
They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was a gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, please tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. To my God and your God. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said all these things to her. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and I put my finger where the nails were, and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Verse 30 and 31 now. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. We can just let this account of Jesus' resurrection sink in. But notice here, people were not inclined to believe it. <laughs> Mary wasn't. Thomas for sure wasn't. The disciples weren't. But yet, when met with undeniable proof that this is the same Jesus, their response was to align their thinking with the evidence. And Thomas, the doubting one, said, My Lord and my God. And then John concludes his account by saying, These things are written that you might believe. They're presenting historical.
historical, factual material to us. Look at 1 John now. Look at 1 John chapter 1. Here, years later, as John writes to early churches about their faith, look what he says about the magnitude of their experience with Jesus. And then how it was real and something they can put their faith in. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, John writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, and we have seen it, and we what? We testify to it. We testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. The continual reference of the apostles is not to what they felt. They don't say we felt Jesus' presence in our hearts. Or our emotions were so overcome by this feeling of what we believed Jesus would be after death. They don't see things like that. They talk about things they testify to using legal courtroom type language. They repeatedly refer to what they've seen and what they've heard. Jesus himself offered his resurrected body to Thomas. Hey, touch the side. Touch my hands. Continual references to things that can be verified are cited concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look now at the book of Acts. The book of Acts, chapter 17, verses 1 through 3. Notice how this was the center of early Christian preaching. Simply an historical reference to the resurrection. Here Paul's in the ancient city of Thessalonica, which you can visit today. And Luke records when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphilopolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned to them from the Scriptures... Verse 3, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. So here they went into synagogues. They went in and reasoned and presented evidence to convince people, and people were convinced, not by having an emotional experience, but by being convinced by the evidence that was presented by the apostles. Look at his preaching in Athens, verse 29 of the same chapter. Paul, middle of the sermon, says this, Since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Verse 31 now. For He has set a day in which He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed. He has given proof. He has given proof of this 
to everyone by raising him from the dead. Verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Demarius, and a number of others. So here the apostles presented convincing proof. Some people sneered. They're being honest. Some people said, no way. Others said, we want to hear you more. Others said, this is enough. When sufficient evidence is provided, people are convinced and they respond accordingly. My point is simply this. Then we focus on the resurrection. Don't for a moment think this is simply a fanciful story or don't go along with others that think, oh, it's just a beautiful story you Christians have. Oh, we just love the story. I read stories to my kids all the time. Don't allow the account of the resurrection of Jesus to be downgraded like that because it's more palatable, or your friends like that more. Present the resurrection to them as, this is a story at 11. These are concise, well-structured accounts of what really happened 2,000 years ago. Just search on Amazon, Evidence for the Resurrection of Christ. One historian after another has written entire books on this subject. PhD scholars that have to have their material peer-reviewed have written about the historical certainty of the resurrection. Our faith is founded on fact. Our faith is founded on fact. What we celebrate every first day of the week and give a lot of attention to today is something rooted in reality. I want to consider for just a moment a couple quotes. For those that would sneer... <laughs> We find in Acts 17. Chuck Colson, who otherwise is known as Charles Colson, um, you can't really read this too well in your notes I gave you, but hopefully you can see it better on the screen. I'm just going to read it. If you recognize that name, if you've lived a little bit, you know that name from what? The 1970s and the Watergate scandal. He was part of the Watergate, the Watergate break in, was sent to prison for his role. Later was converted to Christianity, became a leader in many Christian groups, wrote many books about his faith. And he gave a lot of attention to evidence for the certainty of the Christian faith. And he makes this point about the power of the resurrection, the fact that the 12 apostles who would be persecuted for their faith held to the belief that what they saw and heard was true. And they were not just making it up or telling some kind of lie. Look what Chuck Colson says about the resurrection. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact. And Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they'd seen Jesus raised from the dead. And they proclaimed that truth for 40 years. Never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely 
impossible. It's a great point. At school, our administration gets to the truth of situations real quick. When there's multiple people involved in some prank or some kind of misdeed, they get all the people involved and everybody gives a statement. And that's how they get to the truth. And they take all the statements, and then they start confronting the people that appear to have a fishy story. And the minute the people that are telling a lie are confronted and facing suspension, their parents being called, they will cough up the truth almost every time immediately. Because no one's going to suffer for a lie, they told. They're going to come clean. And it, it's always better for them if they admit to the lie quickly. Right. Yeah, it's always less punishment. I tell them, hey, I'm, I'm on your side. You better tell the truth to the principal. It'll be a lot easier for you. We don't hang on to lies. But the idea that the apostles lied about this, they made up a story, and suffered all their life for it, never recanted, is beyond belief. One person writing about what another author says about the resurrection says this, Every sermon preached by Christians in the New Testament centers on the resurrection. Kreft says, The gospel or good news means essentially the news of Christ's resurrection. He goes on to say that the news that sent the ancient world on fire was not that of love your neighbor, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who claimed to be the Son of God and Savior of the world. The resurrection is of crucial importance because it completes our salvation. So true. In our remaining few moments, that's what we're going to focus on. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Let's look at a couple of these three verses and make some quick points about the practical nature of the resurrection, how it's beyond simply historical fact. Romans chapter 8. Here's the Apostle Paul's reflecting upon the life effect of Jesus Christ upon believers. In the middle of what is possibly one of the most powerfully presented affirmations of the Christian faith and how that, as Michael said, all things are made new as he quoted the revelation. The resurrection changes everything. Look what Paul says in verse 31. He says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with graciously give us all things. Verse 33, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then can condemn? No one. Verse 34, middle, Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth or any other 
thing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. As Paul here expounds upon this undeniable love of God that allows us to be more than conquerors because He is for us in the middle of all these things that empower our life, he says, Jesus Christ who died, verse 34, more than that, who was raised to life. This resurrection event of Jesus Christ changes everything. Number one, it means our, means our life is not futile. Our life has meaning. First, we believe we are created, not the product of a chemical explosion where here by chance. We believe that we are created by an all-powerful God. Second, we believe that we are here on purpose. That He created us for a reason to serve Him and to be obedient to Him, to have the most fulfilling life possible. And we know that we have a future that transcends the grave, which changes every moment of our life. Every moment now means something. Every moment has value, is precious. And as the older hymns say, we're marching to Zion. We have purpose and we can wake up every morning knowing that I'm here to serve God and I know where my life is headed. I know why I'm here. I'm here on purpose and that God knows every moment, every hair of my head is numbered. And the resurrection makes this meaningful because it makes our life not futile, not something that just has to be lived up before we die. Christians don't need bucket list. They don't need to somehow fill up the end of their life with as much activity as they can because that's all there is. It's just the opposite. In the Christian life, the greatest things are yet to come. Amen. The greatest things are yet to come. The things that Mike... Go read in the Revelation about what's going to happen in heaven. We're just getting started. We can't even fully fathom what God's yet to do. We enjoy this life, yes, and we take advantage of God's blessings, but we know that there is more to come and we don't just live it up and drop out, let alone face judgment with fear. Our life is not futile. Secondly, our death is not final. We know that our death does not mean our end. Even though the body and the soul separate at death, the soul goes on to be with God. body goes into the grave awaiting the resurrection to be reborn in its best sense we could imagine. Be given a new body just as Christ had a new body. We don't have to dread our funeral. We don't have to be scared to death of dying. We want to avoid it. We want to prolong this blessed life we've been given. But we don't have to be scared to death of dying. And if you've ever been around people that are scared to death of dying, it's hard to be around them. Because everything is a threat. Everything is a danger to them. But they feel they will die prematurely and then that'll be it. Or they're somehow, at worst, unprepared for what might happen after death. Christians, it's just the opposite. Our death is not final. We are simply 
approaching death as an entryway into eternity. A painful entryway that God never wanted, but sin interfered with, our sin. But it becomes an entryway to all the things God has prepared for us because how Jesus changed everything. Our future is not fearful. We can confront aging. We can confront illness. We can confront tragedy, disappointment, setbacks. What happens after the grave, our biggest concern, without fear. We prepare. We live life accordingly. We live, as Paul said, as new creation, constantly working on our sin and taking on the new life God has given us. But we don't live in fear of death. We live instead with the certainty that God will see us through to the end. And finally, our service will not be forgotten. I want to end with one verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 57 and 58. The entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 is devoted towards the resurrection of ourselves made possible by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Entire chapter devoted to the resurrection. Notice how it ends, though. Verse 57, long chapter. Paul writes, but thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 58, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is what? Not in vain. Amen. What the Apostle Paul is saying here is a good that we give ourselves to in this life echoes into eternity. First of all, it's not unnoticed. Every time we bring food to someone who needs it, or to give someone a ride to the hospital and no one else is aware of it. Or we spend time praying for someone that didn't even ask for it. Every moment that you spend, whether it be service to this body here at Lake Merced or giving money to help out in Ukraine, everything you do that's of good, Paul says it's not in vain. <laughs> here for the Christian, we don't have to have our name put on a building. <laughs> to somehow give worth to our money or our good deeds. We don't have to have an endowment given in our name because our names are already written in the book of life. And we know our Heavenly Father sees and knows all things. Our life is not futile. Our death is not final. Our future is not fearful. Our service is not forgotten. I want to end by reading the words of this song because it captures all of these truths. It's a song that Nathaniel led earlier. Because he lives. This is a powerful song that captures our life. Verse 1, look at the certainty. God sent his son, they called him Jesus. He came to love, heal, and forgive. He lived and died to buy my pardon. An empty grave is there to prove 
my Savior lives. Verse 2, no fear. How sweet to hold a newborn baby and feel the pride and joy he gives. The greater still, the calm assurance this child can face uncertain days because he lives. Verse 3, death. And then one day I'll cross the river. I'll fight life's final war with pain. And then as death gives way to victory, I'll see the lights of glory and I know he lives. The chorus, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. And I know life is worth the living just because my Savior lives. That captures it, doesn't it? That is our hope. And as we conclude this morning, may we go out and live as people who have been brought from death to life. We should be the happiest, most joyful, most confident people. That means, does not mean problem-free, but we can live above these things and win victory over them through our Savior who lives, and the greatest victory will be over death. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. May God be praised. Let's stand and sing this song to encourage us.